We are working our way through the book of Samuel, and we now come to what is known as the Ark narrative, or the Ark of the Covenant narrative. And this stretches from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 7, so I want to give you a little overview of what's coming here. The Ark of the Covenant figures very prominently in these chapters. And uh, we need to understand what's going on here. The Ark is captured by the Philistines, and then the Ark makes its way back to Israel. And so we need to understand what's happening here. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, was a box that was about four feet wide, about two feet tall, covered in gold. It had images of cherubim, these angelic uh, guardian figures uh, on either end. And the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, was enthroned between The cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant, of course, the Ark was kept in the most holy place of the tabernacle. It was essentially God's throne among his people. The Ark, of course, is where blood was put on the Day of Atonement to cover the sins of the people so God could continue to dwell in their midst. Inside the Ark were God's gifts. Inside the Ark were found the treasury of God, symbols of God's beauty, life, and wisdom. You had Aaron's rod that blossomed, a jar of the manna that fell from heaven, and of course, the Ten Commandments. These were God's gifts, kept in his vault, as it were, locked up in the Ark of the Covenant behind those curtains uh, in the most holy place, gifts that God had promised to bestow upon his people In the right time, gifts again of beauty, life, and wisdom. The ark was God's throne. I think that's the best way to understand it. It was the center of God's dwelling with his people. Now, I said that the ark is really the central character in the next several chapters. In a way, that's saying that God is the main character, uh, the central character in the next several chapters. That's obvious. God's always the central character in everything. But here, really, it is the ark that takes center stage. What's happening here? Before we get into the details of chapter 4, I want to give you an overview of chapters 4 through 7 so you can understand the big picture of what's going on here. Think about it this way. What did Moses say would happen if and when... Israel rebelled against God once they got into the promised land. What did Moses say would happen? He said that they would be exiled. That is to say, the conquest of the land and the exodus from Egypt would be reversed. Uh, The exile was the ultimate curse of the covenant for Israel. If Israel broke covenant with God, exile would be the result. They had taken possession of the land in the conquest. They would lose that in exile. Well, we know at this point in the story, Israel has disobeyed the Lord. Israel has been unfaithful. That's especially seen in Israel's uh, priestly family, the high priestly family. But the whole nation is in sin. So what do we expect at this point? They're in sin with Eli and Hophni and Phinehas leading the way in wickedness. What should we expect to have happen next? Well, we'd expect that the people of Israel would be driven from the land in exile. They've broken covenant, so shouldn't the curse of the covenant fall upon them? Of course. Well, what do we see happen in these chapters? Are the people of Israel exiled from their land? Are they taken away from the land? No, they are not. Who is taken away from the land? The Lord. The ark is taken away from the land. His throne, it's his presence that goes in to exile. These chapters here in, in, in 1 Samuel, these chapters, especially chapter 4, it looks like pure 
judgment upon Israel. And it is a judgment on Israel. We will see that. There is a judgment on Israel here. We'll dig into the details of that. But if you stand back and look at the, the bigger picture here, if you take it to a deeper level, this chapter and those that follow, chapters 4 through 7, it is pure gospel. This is pure grace. This is a gospel story. Israel is guilty of great sin. Israel deserves exile. But God, in the form of the Ark of the Covenant, God takes upon himself the punishment that Israel deserves. Does that sound familiar to you? God taking on the punishment that his people deserve, a divine substitute taking the place of his sinful people, suffering for them, suffering the curse of the covenant that they broke, the Lord undergoing humiliation, the Lord suffering for the sake of his people so they won't have to. That's what happens here. It's going to look like The Philistines and their god, Dagon, have won a great battle. It's going to look like Dagon has triumphed over Yahweh. But really, that's just appearances. That is a necessary part of what the Lord is doing for his people. What this passage is really about is substitutionary exile, we could say. Substitutionary exile. And so, very obviously, this passage points forward to the cross, which is a substitution as well. We talk about the cross as substitutionary atonement. Well, this is a substitutionary exile. See, at the cross, Jesus will also take the punishment his people deserve. He will bear the curse of the covenant. That Jesus suffers in exile. He suffers outside the city in exile. He's humiliated. It looks for a moment like Satan has won, like Satan has triumphed, just like it looked like Dagon had won for a moment. But what the Lord does in going into exile, he's really doing for his people. And what Jesus does when he suffers in exile outside the city, he's doing for his people. See, in the Bible, exile is really a form of death. And exodus is a form of resurrection. Exile and exodus go together the same way death and resurrection go together in the scripture. This chapter is the death, you could say, of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, But really, you could say, if you stand back, you could say the whole Bible tells the story of exile and exodus. If you want to take, if you want to summarize the whole Bible, you could really summarize the whole thing as the story of exile and exodus, which means these chapters, the exile of the ark and then the exodus of the, of the ark is really a way of summarizing what the whole Bible is about. Think about it this way. The whole Bible is about this. Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. God exiles them after they sin. That is their death. They are banished from Eden. They're sent away from the garden. That's exile. Jesus, in his death, took the curse of exile upon himself. But Jesus has also accomplished a new exodus in his resurrection. Think about it in very simple terms. Where is Jesus when he's resurrected? He is in a garden. It's another Eden. In fact, when Mary Magdalene comes to the place where he was buried, she thinks that he's the gardener. In John chapter 19, because he's been buried in a garden. Well, the reality is he's not the gardener, or you could say he is, because he is the new Adam. His resurrection reverses Adam's exile. It is his great exodus from the dead. It is his return now to a glorified form of life, resurrection life, 
His resurrection is the ultimate exodus. It reverses the exile. Well, in terms of Samuel, the same thing is happening here. The ark goes away in exile. The Lord suffering the punishment his people deserve for breaking the covenant. The Lord goes into exile, into Philistine territory. So the people won't have to suffer exile themselves. But then the ark is also going to come back in a new exodus. And in fact, it looks a lot like the old exodus that happened with Moses, because just as through Moses God humiliated the gods of the Egyptians, so Dagon is going to be humiliated. Just as God plagued the Egyptians, so the Philistines now will get plagued. Just as the Israelites left Egypt with plunder, with gold and other gifts, so when the Lord comes back, when the ark comes back, the ark will come back with plunder, with lots and lots of gold. It's going to be a replay of the original Exodus. What looks like defeat in this chapter really turns out to be a great victory. The defeat of God here when the ark is captured is really no defeat at all. You could say the defeat of God is greater than the victory of man. And so in both stories, here in Samuel and at the cross, the Lord turns defeat into victory. That's how substitutionary atonement works. Works. The Lord has to suffer for the sake of his people on the way to winning the ultimate victory for them. And so again, I would tell you, while there is certainly more going on here, this whole section, 1 Samuel 4 through 7, this whole section is pure gospel. This is the pure grace of God. That's the big picture of what's happening here. Now, with that big picture in view, let's dig into the details here. We're going to look at this a section at a time. And so let's look at this here in chapter 4. But as we do so, I don't want you to get lost in the details. That's why I gave you the big picture first. I kind of got ahead of myself in doing that, but it gives you a sense of where we're headed. Verse 1 of chapter 4, what do we see? The Israelites go to battle with the Philistines. Now, who are the Philistines? Because the Philistines are going to be a real problem for Israel uh, for much of the book of Samuel. The Philistines are actually distant relatives of the Egyptians. So anytime you read about the Philistines, you should think about this connection with the Egyptians. That's according to Genesis chapter 10. So even when we make the Exodus connection, that's something the Israelites would have been uh, very familiar with. Uh, ironically, the uh, Philistines migrated into the area that today we call the Gaza Strip. Uh, they migrated into that area about the same time that the Israelites conquered the Promised Land. Uh, they came from Crete. They came down from Crete, according to Amos chapter 9. So they were somewhat of a migrant people, but they were also a fairly technologically advanced people. So, for example, they've got iron chariots we're going to see. They were relatively advanced in their military technology, in their military arts. They were a warring People. And so obviously, being in such close proximity to Israel, they posed a threat. But what happens when Israel goes to war with the Philistines? They lose. They lose the battle. They suffer defeat along with 4,000 casualties. There's some question as to whether or not the numbers here are describing actual individual soldiers or whether it's a, mili- a sort of technical military term that describes the divisions or brigades in the army. We're really not sure, but let's just take it as 4,000 casualties that Israel suffers. Well, in verse 3, they ask why. They want to go review the game film, and they want to ask, why did we lose this battle? 
and the elders. So this would be the ruling elders as well as the priests of the nation. So the ruling elders of the people as well as uh, the priests of Israel uh, come together and they make a decision. They decide that what they really need to do is bring the Ark of the Covenant onto the battlefield and they can gain a great victory that way. They think having the Ark with them will give them victory over their enemies. This will give them victory over the Philistines. Now we might ask, well, what should they have done? Well, we've already seen that the nation is in sin. So it seems like a really good thing to do here would be to confess that sin and to repent of that sin, to deal with sin in the camp, to deal with Hophni and Phinehas the way that, say, uh, the family of Achan was dealt with back in the book of Joshua or other times when Israel suffers defeat and it's obvious that it happens because there's sin in their camp. But that's not what they do. They don't confess sin. They don't repent of sin. They don't deal with sin in their midst. Instead, they take the ark out of the tabernacle thinking that having the ark will empower them. They figure that if they bring the Lord's throne out into the battle, they will as it were, force the Lord's hand. He'll have to give them the victory because his own honor will now be at stake. Certainly the Lord will not allow himself to be defeated on the field of battle. Certainly the Lord would not suffer such a great disgrace. The Lord won't let that happen. And so they think the Ark of the Covenant will be their ace in the hole, so to speak. Well, verse 5, the Israelites rejoice when the ark is brought into the battle camp. By contrast, the Philistines are scared to death. When they learn that the Israelites have brought the ark to the battlefield, they are afraid. They say, woe to us. They have heard the stories about what Yahweh can do. This is the God who struck the Egyptians with plagues. The Philistines are thinking, oh, our cousins, the Egyptians, they got defeated by this God, Yahweh. And so if he did this to the Egyptians... What is he going to do to us? Nevertheless, the Philistines exhort one another to manly courage. They say, be men and fight. You know, they give this good pre-game, pre-battle speech to one another. And that's what they go out and do. When the two sides again engage in combat, Israel is defeated. They go to war with each other again, and Israel is defeated again. And this time there is a great slaughter. And in fact, that word for slaughter is related to the word for plague. So whereas the Philistines had feared plagues coming upon them, actually there's a reversal here, an ironic reversal. They plague the, the, the Israelites. The Israelites are the ones who are plagued with a great catastrophe, this great loss. This time Israel loses about 30,000 soldiers. They're expecting the battle of Jericho. Instead, they got the battle of Ai. And on top of that, the ark was captured, and the sons of Eli, as prophesied earlier, both died. They both died that same day. Well, there's a man from the tribe of Benjamin who makes the 20-mile trek from the battlefield uh, back to Shiloh. Uh, This man is obviously in mourning. His clothes are torn. He's got dirt on his head because... Uh, It's ashes to ashes, dust to dust, because the ground has been cursed on account of sin. Putting dust or ash on yourself this way is a sign of mourning. It's a sign of the curse. The rabbis actually believe that this unnamed Benjamite was Saul. We're not told that. Uh, That's speculative, but it's certainly possible. He was a Benjamite who would have been alive at this time. And uh, being able to to make the 20-mile run from the battlefield back to Shiloh fits with other things we know about Saul. So perhaps this is Saul. As he arrives, Eli is sitting out on his seat 
trembling in his heart. See, Eli is such a mixed bag in, in this whole first part of Samuel. Eli probably knew that taking the ark to the battlefield was a bad idea, just like he knew that what his sons were doing at the tabernacle was really bad. But as usual, Eli does nothing to stop it. He's too weak to stop it. And so when the messenger arrives, all of Eli's worst fears are realized in a matter of moments. In fact, even before he gets the news, he can hear that the, that, the, that the Israelites' shouts of joy have turned to cries of mourning. He hears the mourning. The man tells Eli the Philistines have won the battle. And again here, the word that is used to describe the Israelites' defeat is a word that's also used for plagues. So a great catastrophe has fallen upon not the Philistines. They're not the ones plagued. It's the Israelites who get plagued. And then this man tells Eli that his two sons have died, and he tells Eli that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. And that's just too much. At that moment, hearing this news of the Ark, Eli falls over backwards, breaks his neck, and dies right there by the door or by the gate of the tabernacle. His head is crushed. He has lived a somewhat serpentine life, and he suffers the fate of the serpent His head is crushed. The text goes on to explain that he was old and he was heavy. The word for heavy here really is a pun. The word heavy is kabed. The word for glory is kabod. They come from the same root word because glory in the Bible is a kind of heaviness. Glory is a kind of heaviness or weightiness. Uh, It's a kind of gravitas. That's how glory is viewed in Scripture Eli has heaviness, but it's a heaviness of the wrong kind. He's heavy in a different sense. If you go back to chapter 2, you remember that Eli and his sons were accused of fattening themselves on the best portions of the sacrificial offerings. As high priest, Eli had garments of glory described in the book of Exodus, but he doesn't bring glory to Israel. He only brings shame to Israel, shame through his disobedient sons, shame through his ineffectiveness and his failure to judge and rule in a faithful and wise way. His death, not just the fact of his death, but the way that he dies is a fitting picture of Israel's condition here. Eli's inglorious term as high priest and as judge comes to a shameful end. Eli should have projected glory and represented the glory of the Lord to the people as high priest. That was his job. But now the glory is gone. As we're about to see, glory has given way to shame. And note, too, one thing that you see throughout is how God is a piece at a time bringing Hannah's prayer that we saw back in chapter 2, Hannah's song. God is bringing about the fulfillment of Hannah's prayer. One of the things Hannah had prayed for was that the Lord would dethrone the mighty when they're wicked and that he would cause the full to go hungry. Well, the Lord has done just that here with Eli's household. They filled themselves on sacrifices that did not belong to them, and now they're left desolate. Uh, They were mighty in power, but now they have been brought low. The mighty have fallen. Well, there's still one more episode in this part of the story. Uh, The scene now shifts from Eli to Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas. Uh, She was pregnant, and in the wake of this trauma, she gives birth to a son, 
And then having given birth, she dies as well. So all kinds of death for the household of Eli on this day. The news of the ark was more than she could bear, just like it was for Eli, and so she dies. But before she dies, she gives her son a name. She calls the child Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed, or more precisely, the glory is exiled. She realizes what this means. The glory of the Lord has gone into exile. The glory The glory of the Lord is gone away from Israel. The the glory of the Lord is in exile. In a way, giving her son this name is a sign of her hopelessness, her despondency, her despair, the very despair that led to her death. And now this orphan child named Ichabod will be a continual reminder of Israel's failure to be faithful. It will be a continual reminder of the shame that Eli's whole household brought to the nation of Israel. This boy's name memorializes Israel's defeat. The glory has departed. Later on in Israel's history, uh, Ezekiel will have an Ichabod moment when the prophet Ezekiel has a vision of what's going on in the, the, the temple. And he sees that the temple is actually full of idolatry. They're not really worshiping Yahweh. They're worshiping idols. And Ezekiel sees the Shekinah glory of God there in the most holy place. Essentially pack up his bags and move away. The glory of the Lord goes into exile, away from the temple. The glory departs from the house that is there, the the, the temple house that is there in Jerusalem. Really, you could say Jesus announces the same kind of thing to the Jews in his day when he announces that the temple that they have, uh, that they prize so much and that they pride themselves in having. Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon another. He says, your house will be left to you desolate. That is to say, this temple is going to be desolate. It's going to be left empty. Jesus announces this judgment. See, God departs from the people. God judges the people by departing from them. So they will be bereft of his presence. They will be without his blessing, without his wisdom. See, when the Lord here, when the ark is captured, it's not that God is siding with the Philistines. No, not at all. He's using the Philistines to bring about a judgment against his people the same way he'll use the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Romans to bring judgment on his people as well later in history. Now, that's the story. I want to ask a couple questions here. A couple questions we want this story to answer for us. They're very intertwined. First, why did Israel trust the ark in this way? And why was it so wrong to do so? And so then related to that, what does a story like this teach the church in our day, especially in our present cultural crisis? Why did Israel trust the ark? Why was this wrong to do? What what did they get wrong? What's the actual problem here? And what does this teach us about being the church in our day, especially in our present cultural moment? Well, why was it wrong for Israel to take the ark into battle? Why didn't this work? Back in Numbers chapter 10, we find that when the ark was set out, Moses says, so when the ark is brought out, Moses says, arise and scatter your enemies, O Lord. It seems that the ark is associated with battle and with warfare and with victory, with scattering the Lord's enemies. So if Moses said that over the ark, why shouldn't they bring the ark onto the field of battle and expect the Lord to scatter his enemies? Not only that, but in Joshua chapter 6, they carry the ark 
with them when they march around Jericho. Of course, they marched around the city several times and then God gives them the victory. So there's precedent even, it would seem, for what the Israelites are doing here. Some think the problem here is superstition. That the Israelites were treating the ark like a rabbit's foot or like a talisman. Uh, They kind of treat it like a good luck charm. And the thing is, if that's what Israel is doing here, then it's pretty easy for us to dismiss it because my guess is that most of us are not really very superstitious. I would doubt that I'd be really shocked if any of you were carrying around a a rabbit's foot in your pocket thinking it's going to bring you good luck or good fortune. That's just not something that that Christians really do. And if that's what Israel is doing here, it's easy for us to say, well, they were primitive people. That was superstition. We don't have that problem. And then we can kind of dismiss this and say, well, this doesn't really teach us anything about our lives. We don't have that problem. So, you know, too bad for Israel, but that's not us. But I actually think that this does hit much Closer to home. We will see superstition associated with the ark. I think when the Philistines take possession of the ark, you're going to see some real superstition beginning in the next chapter. But for Israel, I think it's a different issue. It's not superstition. That's not their sin here. The sin is what I would call covenant presumption. And this very much is a sin that God's people struggle with. We struggle with it today, and we have always struggled with it throughout our history as God's people. See, Israel is saying here, we are God's people. We're God's people. God has claimed us and blessed us. God is with us. They want to claim God's promises. All that sounds good, but here's the problem. They want to claim God's promises, even though they don't want to obey God's laws. And you can't have one without the other. You can't claim God's promises unless you're willing to obey God's words. They presume upon their status with God. They presume upon their status as God's people as if it made them immune to judgment. God can't judge us because he's already claimed us and made us his. As if merely possessing the ark was enough, even without obeying. So we've got the ark, and so therefore we don't have to obey the one enthroned upon the ark. That's their thinking. It is covenant Presumption. They thought they had God in a box, quite literally. They thought they could domesticate God and have God at their beck and call. They thought of God the way we might think of a waiter at a restaurant. Think about this. Think about this as an analogy. At a restaurant, you don't spend a lot of time thinking about your waiter. Uh, You only think about your waiter at a restaurant when you really need something. You know, when you want to order And so you give instructions to your waiter or when you want a refill of your drink or when it's time for dessert. Then you think about your waiter. But otherwise, the waiter doesn't really have much to do with what's going on at the table. You kind of you do your own thing. And the waiter's only there when you need something, when you can use the waiter to get something you want. The waiter doesn't sit at the table with you. The waiter doesn't share in your fellowship. The waiter certainly doesn't tell you what to do. The waiter is, is, is expected to serve you and to meet your needs. There are some people, there are some people in the church, there are some people called Christians who treat God this way. He's not really part of their lives except for when they need something, when they might find some use for him. They only bring God in when he is useful to them in some way. So a lot of people... In the church, that treat God like a waiter, thinking he's at their beck and call. There's a lot of Christians, 
I mean, this should be obvious in our day. There are a lot of Christians who don't take God very seriously. They don't fear God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. There's no reverence. God is weightless to them. God does not have this weighty glory in their view. Lots of Christians today want God as a cheerleader or as a mascot, but not God as a sovereign king who will rule them and command them. They want God as a cheerleader, as a personal mascot. God standing by, yeah, you go, you be you. They don't want God as a sovereign king ruling over them. Lots of Christians today want to use God for the benefits, but not have to obey God. God exists for their glory, you might say, rather than the other way around. A lot of Christians today want covenant membership without covenant obligation. Lots of Christians, just like the Israelites, want promises without duty, benefits without sacrifice, salvation without repentance. Lots of Christians today take God lightly. They refuse to let themselves be challenged or convicted by God's word. They want their ears tickled. They just want to hear what they want to hear. They will say they are Christians, but they will keep God's law at an arm's length. They keep God at a distance. There are many today who think that God exists to make us happy, to serve our needs, to affirm us in everything we want to do. They don't think God will ever disagree with them. That can't be God. God God wouldn't cross me in that way. God wouldn't disagree with me in that way. God's not going to ask me to do something I don't feel like doing. God would never offend me or offend my sensibilities, right? Sadly, this is exactly how most Americans think of God. He's the waiter at the restaurant. Useful when we need him, but otherwise not part of the picture. Not really a central part of our lives. He's a mascot. He's a cheerleader. He's the Santa Claus in the sky, the vending machine. Who, will, If he doesn't always give us what we want, well, at least he's not going to tell us to do something we don't want to do. He's not going to ask us to do hard things. See, this is the American view of God, but it's not just out there in the world. It's also seeped into so much of the church. We think of God the same way the Israelites thought of the ark. God serves my needs My purpose is God is there to give me my best life now. God is there to give me victory on the battlefields of life. God's there to give me an easy victory on my terms, without repentance, without obedience. But I think we get even more specific in how we understand Israel's sin here. This is the sin of covenant presumption. They think because they have the tabernacle, because they have the Ark of the Covenant, because they have the covenant sign of circumcision, because they have the covenant word of God, that God will always be on their side. God's always on Team Israel, right? God's always going to play for them, and God will always be there to save them, to bail them out. Israel constantly fell into this sin, and I can tell you, the church has fallen into this sin many times as well. We see this come up again and again in the scripture. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says that God will not accept your ascension offerings any longer. God's not pleased with your worship assemblies. Why? It seems like they're doing the liturgy correctly. Why isn't God pleased with their worship? Isaiah makes it clear. It is because they disobey God and disregard God in everyday life. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so honoring me with their lips is not enough. All the outward forms are correct, 
But their worship is still an abomination because they live lives of unfaithfulness. Their hearts have not been changed. They are not repentant. Look, you need to understand, having the perfect liturgy doesn't help a people who won't repent, who won't seek to serve God in all of life. Having the perfect liturgy can still be an abomination if we're only honoring God with our lips and not with our lives. That's the message of Isaiah. It's the same thing in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, the true prophet, so Jeremiah is the true prophet of the Lord. He says judgment is coming. He says judgment is coming upon Israel because of your sin. The false prophets cry out, the temple, the temple. We have the temple. God's not going to allow his own house to be destroyed. God can't judge us because we have his temple and so we're safe. Surely God would never suffer the disgrace of having his own house destroyed and overrun by pagans. And so Jeremiah says the false prophets cry out, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah wants them to go to war with their sin. Instead, they've gone to war with God. They just don't realize it. And, of course, judgment came just as Jeremiah said it would. They presumed they were safe. Turns out they were wrong. And a devastating judgment came upon them. In John chapter 8, the Pharisees insisted they were right with God no matter what. Because, hey, we've got Abraham for our father. Abraham is our father. Surely we're right with God. And Jesus says, no, actually, you have the devil for your father. Abraham looked ahead to my day and rejoiced. You don't share the faith and the obedience of Abraham. So you are no sons of Abraham. Your Abrahamic connection will not save you unless you repent of your sin and seek to obey God in all of life. Now, there are people who do the exact same thing in the church today. They figure, well, I've been baptized, and I know baptism is an efficacious means of grace. And I'm a church member, and I know the church is the body and bride of Christ. And, I, I, and so I'm a Christian, so surely I'm safe. People think because they go to a church with an excellent liturgy, they're safe no matter how they live. They presume God is with them no matter what. Because we've got baptism, we've got the supper, we've got the liturgy. These things are ours. Surely God can't judge us. But here's the reality. Nothing objective guarantees subjective faithfulness. And subjective faithfulness is necessary to salvation. You're in a church where we very much believe the objective matters. Things like membership, church membership, the means of grace, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Having a beautiful and biblical liturgy. All of those things matter a great, great deal. We must have them. But none of them in themselves are sufficient. They are necessary, but they are not sufficient. All of these gifts, these objective gifts of baptism and the supper and the liturgy, all of these gifts must be received with a living and loving If you don't mix those gifts with a living and loving faith, those gifts will actually only serve to intensify your judgment. And in many ways, this is the state of the American church. I didn't grow up in the South mainly. I grew up uh, outside of Chicago. And um, uh, most people that I knew there actually did have a church connection. 
They were Roman Catholic or they were Greek Orthodox. Those were kind of the dominant expressions of the church where I lived. But most of the people who had these church connections with Roman Catholicism or Greek Orthodoxy, they didn't really live out their faith. I'm not going to say that that, that none of them did. But the vast majority of them did not. They were what you would call nominal. They didn't live out their faith in a meaningful way that transformed their daily existence. Rather, they presumed that they were safe with God because they were somehow connected to the right church. They had participated in the sacraments. They, they were Roman Catholic. They used the rosary. They had a Christian heritage, no doubt. They thought they were safe. They presumed upon the Lord. I can assure you they were wrong to do so. That is the sin of covenant presumption. The objective is not enough. Again, it must be mixed with an obedient and transformative faith. But, you know, really, we have the same thing in a different version down here in the South. People who walk an aisle and get baptized at age 10 or 12, there's always a rush to get the kids in a Baptist church baptized before they become teenagers because who knows what happens then. But get them baptized uh, when they're 10 or 12 years old and then tell them, now you're right with God no matter what. You're right with God. Once saved, always saved, right? Well, no, that's not how it works. Once saved, always saved has to be combined with the perseverance of the saints. Otherwise, it's not true. Once saved, always saved, fine. But the saved are going to manifest their salvation by how they live the rest of their days. That's just how it is. That's that's just the clear teaching of God's word. You can't just go through religious motions. Christ has to be the central core commitment in your life. Christ has to be the central love and affection in your life, the central joy in your life. I mean, there's so many examples of this. I'm going to give you know maybe a couple here that are kind of silly. Um, there was, um, and I, I think I've used this one before, so bear with me. But the the the, the TV show, The Bachelorette. I don't watch it, but I did read about this one because it got a lot of headlines uh, a while back. There was a bachelorette contestant from right here in Alabama. I guess her kind of the name she became known as was Alabama Hannah. And it became really clear over the course of the show and interviews she did outside the show and that kind of thing that she was a professing Christian. She had a church connection. She had been baptized. She had all those things. But there she is you know, on the show, very obviously fornicating with other contestants on the show. And she was called out for this. And this is what she said. She said, I can do whatever. I sin daily and Jesus still loves me. Nobody is going to judge me. Okay. The news for Alabama Hannah is, yes, you will be judged. And no, that's not how it works. Okay. What Alabama Hannah is saying is no different than Israel saying, hey, the ark will give us victory. We'll bring the ark out onto the battlefield. doesn't matter how corrupt the life we live. Hey, everybody sins every day, right? Let's just bring the ark with us and we'll have victory. That is not the way it works. It is true. Christians do sin every day. That's right. But you know what else Christians do every day? They grieve over their sin. They confess their sin. They repent of their sin. They fight against their sin. They're not indifferent to their sin. They don't treat their sin lightly. They don't say, well, sure, I sin every day, but who cares because Jesus forgives. We cannot sin so that the grace of God may abound. When Paul asked that question in Romans 6, he says, God forbid that we say, sin all you want because grace abounds. Alabama Hannah thought she could trot out the ark of saying she's, she's baptized, she's a Christian, and that would save her. But no, 
If she refuses to obey, if she refuses to fight the good fight, if she refuses to strive to enter the narrow gate, if she refuses to make every effort to be holy, that's not salvation. That's not how it looks. The Apostle John in 1 John says we know that we know him if we obey him. Covenant membership does not guarantee salvation because some covenant members become covenant breakers. And so we must keep covenant with God. How do we keep covenant with God? The way to keep covenant with God is by obeying the covenant demands. It's by believing the covenant promises and doing the works that flow out of that faith. The way we keep covenant with God is by practicing a living, loving, persevering faith. That is the Christian life. It is a great privilege to be a part of a faithful Christian church. It's a great privilege to have Christian parents. It's a great privilege to grow up in a Christian home. It's a great privilege to go to a church where there's a biblical and beautiful liturgy. To go to a church that that sings the best worship music that's ever been written across the centuries. It is a great privilege to take the Eucharist every Lord's Day. But none of that is going to save you unless you repent and believe. And keep on repenting and believing. If not even the Ark of the Covenant could substitute for and stand in for a living, real faith, then none of those other things can either. See, 1 Samuel 4 stands as a warning to us all. A warning that really Paul summarizes in Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, Paul, writing to a predominantly Gentile church, he says, yes, it is true that Jews were broken out of the olive tree of the covenant because of their unbelief. He says, you stand by faith, but don't become prideful. Don't become presumptuous. Instead, Paul says, be fearful. If God did not spare the natural branches, he's not going to spare you either. Consider both the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who fell away from the faith, but kindness towards those who continue in the faith. That is his message in Romans 11, Paul's message. That is the message of 1 Samuel chapter 4 as well. The glory will depart from a people who do not obey the Lord of glory. So here's the deal. Here's the bottom line. You do need the objective. The objective matters. Church membership, baptism, the supper, the word, the liturgy. These are all means God uses to bring about salvation. They do matter. But these means only affect salvation when they are embraced by a true and abiding, life-changing faith. Do you have that faith? Are you loyal to Christ? Do you make every effort to be holy? Do you seek to fight the good fight? Because that's what the Christian life looks like. Or do you presume upon God? Do you assume that all is well, no matter how you live, that you can do your own thing, you can live your own way, but because you got baptized... Because you have your name on a church roster, because you've taken the Lord's Supper a bunch, all is well. Don't believe the lie of covenant presumption. See, the reality is all Christians do indeed struggle with sin. We do. Sometimes we as Christians fail. Often we fail. We need God's forgiveness. But no faithful Christian is going to be indifferent to his sin. Every real Christian is going to fight his sin. Let this story be a warning to you. Look at Hophni and Phinehas. Look at Eli. Look at 34,000 dead Israelites. 
They are all a picture to you of what covenant presumption does. It leads to death. They are all relying on the wrong thing. The way to life is the way of trusting. It's the way of obeying. It's the way of repenting. You are God's covenant people. You have been chosen. You have been blessed. You have been given gifts. You are God's covenant people. May you all be covenant keepers as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.